Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, So Tracy, as you probably know, I mean, we all know about Lady Chatterley's Lover. Today we kind of think of it as like sort of a steamy classic book. Um, sure. That was not the case when it came out. Then it was just considered obscene. <laughs> uh, and it stayed uh, categorized as obscene for a long time. We just passed the anniversary of a trial in Great Britain in which it was debated whether the book was obscenity or whether it had literary merit. And that trial story is a story I really love. Uh, it didn't actually happen until 30 years after D.H. Lawrence, the author, had died. And it really marks a moment in history where there was a lot of discussion about the legalities of determining the value of a work of art or literature. That's something that people still grapple with today as humans with different values and ideologies. And we are all trying to survive together on this rock hurtling through space. Not everybody agrees on what is art and what has merit uh, versus what might be considered inappropriate or obscene. So today we're going to first talk about author D.H. Lawrence, whose life was in many ways as dramatic as any book he wrote. He also borrowed a lot from his life for his writing. Uh, And then we're going to talk about obscenity laws in Great Britain specifically. This book has a whole life in terms of it being considered obscene and litigated in many countries, but we're primarily focusing on Great Britain and we will talk a little bit about uh, things going on in the U.S. because they dovetail on one another. 
And then we're going to talk about the trial that made Lady Chatterley really world-famous in the mid-20th century. Heads up, as you may have guessed from this introduction, uh, we are talking about a book that involves a lot of sex. Uh, However, I will say we're being pretty careful about that. Like, we're not really going into detail (laughs) about any of the descriptions in the book. We're not reading any of the passages in the book that you would consider salacious, if that's your thing. Um, But just know that, like, we are going to mention some of it and, and how it was perceived both legally and by readers, as well as some of Lawrence's other work. So David Herbert Lawrence was born on September 11th, 1885, in the coal mining town of Eastwood, Nottinghamshire, England. His early life was really not easy at all. His father, Arthur John Lawrence, worked in the mines, and his mother, Lydia, was a lace maker. It's believed that Arthur wasn't able to read, but Lydia was actually well-educated. She had grown up in a middle-class family before that family lost everything they had, and she'd had educational opportunities that her husband did not. Lydia's love of literature is usually cited as having a strong influence on David, who was the couple's fourth child. Yeah, I read uh, varying accounts about whether he went by David or Bert more more around the house. We know his mother called him Bert, but just FYI, you'll hear him called sometimes David, sometimes DH, sometimes Bert in this podcast. Uh, Lawrence was not a child of robust health, and his frailty was only accentuated by being in a coal town where the air was not exactly ideal to be breathing. That also meant that he was often kind of left behind socially, as he often convalesced at home. He did excel academically, and at the age of 12, he received a scholarship to Nottingham High School. That was something that no child from Eastwood had ever received before. His time at Nottingham was not as impressive in terms of academic achievement as his earlier schooling had been, and he still struggled to make friends, and he was often sick. At the age of 16, Lawrence started a job as a clerk in a factory that made surgical supplies, but he was only there a few months before he got sick. He got pneumonia and had to leave his job to recover. This was after the death of his brother, William, and it's possible that the stress of grief contributed to his health issues during this time. After he more or less got better, he started teaching school. That was back in Eastwood. And he also met a longtime friend, Jesse Chambers. Jesse seems to have sort of picked up the same flag that Lawrence's mother had carried in terms of encouraging David to look for a better life than Eastwood could offer. Jesse, like Lydia, urged Lawrence to write, which he did. And at this point, Lawrence was simultaneously pursuing a writing career and a teaching career. And this was in the early 1900s. In 1906, he published his first short story that was called An Enjoyable Christmas, A Prelude. He was also at this point studying to get his teaching certificate in Nottingham. He was also working on his novel, The White Peacock, which was published in 1911. That novel was followed in 1912 by The Trespasser. These successes were almost undoubtedly shadowed by the fact that Lydia Lawrence, his mother, had died in 1910, and her son, who she called Bert, grieved the loss very deeply, writing at one point that he and his mother had an almost marriage-like love. In 1912, while visiting a former professor named Ernest Weekly, Lawrence fell really deeply in love but that was with Ernest Weekly's wife. She was German novelist Frieda von Richthofen. 
Lawrence was engaged at the time, but he broke off this engagement immediately and persuaded Frida to leave Ernest. He also quit his job to become a full-time novelist. Lawrence and Frida traveled to Germany and then to Italy. David wrote at a rapid pace throughout all of these travels. Yeah, this was a very dramatic time. There is a story that he actually was suspected of being a spy when they were in Germany, uh, and that was why they had to leave pretty quickly and go to Italy. And of course, all of this may have been catalyzed by just him having been in an emotionally fraught state, still dealing with the loss of his mother. In the first year of his relationship with Frida, Lawrence published his first play titled The Daughter-in-Law, his first book of poetry titled Love Poems and Others, and his third novel, the acclaimed Sons and Lovers. Sons and Lovers is generally considered D.H. Lawrence's first truly great work, and it draws a lot from Lawrence's own life. It tells the story of a boy, Paul Morrill, from a mining town who yearns for more and tries to make a better life for himself as he navigates his relationship with his mother and two women with whom he has romantic relationships. Doesn't sound familiar at all. (laughs) After this whirlwind that he went through of travel and writing and putting out Sons and Lovers, David and Frida returned to England, and they got married on July 13th, 1914. That was basically right after her divorce was legally finalized. His first short story collection, The Prussian Officer, was published soon after the wedding. Lawrence's next published work marked the start of his problems with being accused of obscenity. The Rainbow was released in 1915, and it follows three generations of one family in a world that's rapidly changing from an agricultural society to an industrialized one. The reason critics called this obscene was that it had a number of instances where passion and sexual desire were discussed really plainly in very frank and open terms. In one instance, a couple's sex life is reinvigorated after the husband has a brief sexual encounter with another woman while traveling. The couple's relationship becomes focused almost entirely on their sexual connection to the exclusion of everything else, even their family. This was, of course, not just a scenario where readers of 1915 would find the sexual writing shocking, although they did. The characters were also very clearly breaking social mores. In addition to that shift in that couple's relationship, there is later on in the book a sexual encounter between two women. This entire book ended up being banned on the grounds that it was obscene. Half of the print run was destroyed. And when Lawrence's publishers at Methuen appeared before a magistrate, they really threw D.H. Lawrence under the bus, saying that they kept telling him to change things, but that he stopped making edits for them, and then they just had to go to print. This was all happening, too, at a time when D.H. Lawrence and his wife Frida would have loved to have left England, but they could not because of World War I. They were living in a small cottage in Cornwall, and because of the controversy surrounding Lawrence's writing, as well as the fact that his wife was German, they were having just a really isolated life. They had nobody from the community who wanted to befriend them. Yeah, they definitely had friends in, like, intellectual circles, but in terms of their day-to-day lives, they were sort of community pariahs. Uh, Lawrence was working on his sequel to The Rainbow, which was Women in Love. Those two books had initially been planned as one larger book, but then his publisher uh, had asked him to split it into two. 
And while he was writing Women in Love, he and Frida were in a state of constant conflict as they worked through some issues that had come up in their rather hasty marriage. For one thing, D.H. was grappling with his own sexual identity as he recognized that he had been attracted to other men. And while his own writing suggests that he came to terms with an identity of bisexuality, this subject has continued to be discussed and debated by literary critics and biographers for decades. Additionally, Frida had entered the marriage believing that this was going to be an open one and that she would be free to have lovers other than her husband. That was something that D.H. Lawrence was not comfortable with, although eventually they worked this out and she did have some freedom in that regard. So not only were the newlyweds alone and under constant suspicion from their neighbors, they were also in a constant state of stress between the two of them. Women in Love reflects this conflict. The story picks up with Ursula, who was the character in focus at the end of the rainbow, as well as her sister and the two marriages that each of them enter into. These two marriages are deeply intertwined, and the story is very much about people trying to find relationships in which they feel fulfilled as individuals and as sexual beings. Because of the issues and controversy surrounding the rainbow, Publication of Women in Love took a while. Publisher Thomas Seltzer took it through three years of revisions before it went to print in New York in 1920. And even then, the first edition was only released to subscribers. It was published in London the following year, where it was not banned, although it was still considered controversial. When World War I ended, D.H. and Frida Lawrence left England and moved to Italy. It was there that he finished his editing on Women in Love, and he also completed a set of short stories titled My England and Other Stories, which came out in 1922. He also worked on several other novels, including The Lost Girl and Aaron's Rod. After two years in Italy, the Lawrences headed to the U.S. They opted not to go across the Atlantic to make this journey, but instead they went to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and then Australia, and then across the Pacific to reach the U.S. While he was in Australia, he wrote the book Kangaroo over the course of about a month and a half. This novel, even more than most of his other work, is pretty obviously autobiographical. The main character, Richard Lovett, is an English writer married to a German woman, and after living in England through the World War, they move to Australia. Once there, this character, Lovett, finds himself in the push and pull of conflicting political movements in the country. He ultimately finds that he does not feel a connection to the parties who were vying for his alliance. There continues to be debate over whether D.H. Lawrence was drawing from real events and people in his descriptions of the political leaders and parties of Australia at the time. Yeah, there are definitely people who are like, he's describing people that were real, and obviously that's what this is. And other people are like, yeah, but in his time in Australia, he wasn't there long enough to have met all of these people in these very high-profile and controversial positions, Uh, and for it to not have been particularly well-documented if that had been the case. But after leaving Australia, the Lawrences made their way to North America, and they headed to Taos, New Mexico, where they lived for a little while. Lawrence had been working for several years before this on a nonfiction project titled Studies in Classic American Literature, and he finished that while living in Taos. 
This book includes literary criticism of writers like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville, among others. And he also wrote three other nonfiction works in the early 1920s, before they even reached the U.S. So Movements of European History and Psychoanalysis in the Unconscious were both published in 1921. And then Fantasia of the Unconscious was published in 1922. His American literature criticism work was the last of his nonfiction books to be published, and that came out in 1923. He continued to write fiction as well, and his next book was Boy in the Bush, which came out in 1924. The Plumed Serpent, which was released in 1926, is an interesting approach to the function of religion in a post-war world, and the end of Christianity and a return to indigenous religious traditions. This book, which featured a revival of Aztec religious rites, was no doubt informed by the trips the writer made to Mexico while living in the American Southwest. Yeah, definitely a tourist's version of such things. Um, not, <laughs> not something you would go to for any kind of accurate representation of such things. In 1925, D.H. Lawrence was diagnosed with tuberculosis after he had had a bronchial hemorrhage and seen a doctor. He left New Mexico and returned to Italy after his diagnosis, and there he started working on Lady Chatterley's Lover. But it was not his only project. He also penned a travel fiction called Sketches of Etruscan Places. Um, I saw that described once as, like, kind of his his dream version of his life of travel, where it, like, a, there's a self-insert character in every situation of, like, it sounds like this would be my cool life if I lived abroad. Um he did live a cool life abroad, so it's kind of interesting. Sketches was published in 1926, and then he went back to work on Lady Chatterley, or Lady C, as he called it, in correspondence with friends. When that book was published in 1928, it was published privately, once again to subscribers and not available to the general public. We will talk a lot more about this in just a moment, but though he believed in his book, D.H. Lawrence also knew that it had its detractors, even before it had left the printer. He wrote of the book to his agent, quote, I am determined to stand by Lady C and to send her out into the world as far as possible. I perfectly understand that CB and Rich are against her, thinking she will do me harm and probably disliking her anyhow, but I stand by her and am perfectly content she should do me harm with such people as take offense at her. I am out against such people fly, little boat. I sort of love that uh, writing. It's just got like a great attitude to it, in my opinion. As his health declined, D.H. Lawrence moved once more in 1929, this time to the south of France. And there he worked on a number of poems and a critique of religion, and specifically the book of Revelations titled Apocalypse, that was published posthumously. D.H. Lawrence died in Vence, France on March 2nd, 1930. He was only 44 at the time. Lawrence was buried initially in Vence. According to Frida, this was at a small, simple ceremony. She wrote of it, quote, We buried him, very simply, like a bird we put him away, a few of us who loved him. Frida moved back to Taos to live with Angelo Ravagli, who had been Lawrence's friend and Frida's lover for several years before D.H. died. She eventually married him quite late in her life, Five years after D.H. Lawrence died, Ravagli returned to France to have the author's body exhumed and cremated so that he could be brought back to Taos. That's something that Frida had requested. There's a whole other story here. 
and we'll talk about it a little more on Friday. In a moment, we're going to dig a little deeper into the story of Lady Chatterley and the laws that governed this book's availability for a long time. But first, we will hear from the sponsors that keep the show going. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be, with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding Finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. 
And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. The controversy of D.H. Lawrence's work outlived him by quite a stretch. When his book came out in 1928, British authorities declared that it was permanently banned in Great Britain. Knopf published a version in the U.S. that same year, but that was a very heavily edited edition. The plot of the book is about the marriage and affairs of the titular character, Constance Chatterley. Her husband, Sir Clifford Chatterley, is paralyzed from the waist down, and their life is both physically and emotionally void. They really do not connect on any level. Connie has a brief affair with a playwright that also leaves her unfulfilled, but then she starts a relationship with the estate gamekeeper, Oliver Malors, who is also married. Their affair is really intense and sensual in a way that Connie has never experienced before, and ultimately, it unravels their lives as both Malors and Connie try to escape their marriages. The book doesn't end with them together, but there's a sense of hope that they might eventually be together. And while the book has, in more recent decades, come under criticism for featuring a woman in a role of socioeconomic power becoming obsessed with a man who is not exactly kind to her, Malors is pretty distant and even derisive, Lady Chatterley's Lover was, for its time, incredibly progressive for continuing to put forth the idea of a woman even having sexual appetites. It's also pretty straightforward about the many sex acts it describes. It's not demeaning uh, for either partner, and it offers up the idea that real love and passion and sexuality are things that people have lost touch with as society has become more industrialized. I have not read this book. Um, does it fall into the trope of disabled people as, like, sexless? Not really. Okay. Um, so her husband comes back from the war with, with that paralysis, and he seems to, over the course of the book, become possibly, there's, like, hints that he's he's having some sort of relationship with his nurse. Mm. It doesn't really go into much sexuality there, Um but I, think I was just curious because that is a very common trope. It is for sure. Um, I think you could argue either side of it, honestly, uh, because he's very he seems very permissive and even suggestive that she should go elsewhere to have her sexual needs met. But because they're which could fall into that trope, but because their relationship is just off anyway. Mm hmm. You could argue the opposite, that he just okay. doesn't want anything to do with her. Um, it has also been a long time since I've done a thorough read of it, so don't sure. take any of that as any <laughs> kind of expertise or thorough gospel on the matter. <laughs> cool. Uh, to get to the legal part of all of this, Lord Campbell's Act, also known as the Obscene Publications Act of 1857, established laws against obscene literature in Britain, and it was problematic in a lot of the same ways of other obscenity laws we've talked about on the show recently. It did not define what qualified as obscene. Literature that was questioned as possibly being obscene was determined on a case-by-case -case basis in court. 
So, of course, that led to some situations where the application of the law was inconsistent or even where literature that described fairly commonplace happenings that people might see every day was determined to be obscene just because the judge involved applied his own sense of morality to the line of the law. Additionally, that act provided a great deal of power to authorities. Under the act, police were empowered to search any establishment they believed might have obscene literature for sale or distribution. It also enabled postal workers to confiscate any parcels that were suspected of containing obscene materials and for the destruction of any such materials. Section 3 of the 1857 Act also stated that, quote, no action, suit, or information, or any proceeding of what nature soever shall be brought against any person for anything done or omitted to be done in pursuance of this act or in the execution of authorities under this act. There was a provision here that a person could take legal action against someone if certain requirements related to a, a fairly narrow window, there's like, there's a three-month window, but there's also a one-month window. It's worded very, very um, specifically, but also in a way that's quite confusing. Uh, and it also stated that the party intending to prosecute had to notify the defendant in writing about it first. So basically, if someone took your things and destroyed them and they weren't, in any way obscene at all, even though even though they could say, I thought it was obscene, you had no recourse to, like, get any kind of recompense from it. And because of the rather nebulous nature of this law and all of these problems with it, as well as some others, it was criticized literally from the beginning. Even so, it took more than 100 years for the act to be updated. The big changes that took place in the Obscene Publications Act of 1959 were first a provision for a defense of innocent dissemination, meaning the person who distributed the obscene item didn't mean to do so, and second for a defense based on the social or artistic value of the item being distributed. This is outlined in Section 4 of the law titled Defense of Public Good, and it reads, quote, one, a person shall not be convicted of an offense against Section 2 of this Act, and an order for forfeiture shall not be made under the foregoing section if it is proved that publication of the article in question is justified as being for the public good on the ground that it is in the interests of science, literature, art, or learning, or of other objects of general concern. Two, it is hereby declared that the opinion of experts as to the literary, artistic, scientific, or other merits of an article may be admitted in any proceedings under this act, either to establish or to negative the said ground. That defense of public good phrase made a lot of publishers start to reevaluate literature that they had not been able to bring to press before the law was updated. And one of those titles was, of course, Lady Chatterley's Lover. There was a similar trajectory for the book's status in the United States. In 1930, Utah Senator Reed Smoot seemed kind of obsessed with Lawrence's last novel and led a charge to have it banned as a small section of a larger tariff act that he was co-sponsoring. Smoot stated in a debate on the Senate floor, quote, I could tell from the very beginning that it is written by a man with a diseased mind and a soul so black that he would obscure the darkness of hell. 
Nobody would write a book like that unless his heart was as rotten and as black as it could possibly be. Although it seemed that most of his colleagues thought this fixation on Lawrence's book was a little overzealous, his Tariff Act passed, and Lady Chatterley could only be published in the United States in a heavily abridged form that removed all of the explicit sex scenes. Yeah, there's a, if you ever just want to have a fun time, uh, look at old newspapers <laughs> with, with Reed Smoot and some of his colleagues arguing about this uh, because they really kind of get his goat a lot of the time where they're like, really? You think it's gross, but you seem to have read it completely. And he's very adamant that he only spent 10 minutes looking at it. Like, it's a whole weird thing. <laughs> Um, in the cases of both the U.S. and Great Britain obscenity laws, because Lawrence's book had been published initially in Italy and had to be shipped to people in those countries who wanted it, that meant that customs offices and post offices were supposed to be the main line of defense against this questionable material getting into those countries. But after the initial release, official statements about it from government officials and this kind of Furor that people like Smoot had experienced kind of died down. Interest in the ban in the U.S. was reignited when a French adaptation of the novel for film challenged its censorship in the U.S. Kingsley Pictures, the film's distributor, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court after the state of New York denied a distribution license because, quote, its subject matter is adultery presented as being right and desirable for certain people under certain circumstances. And it said that it, quote, alluringly portrays adultery as proper behavior. When Kingsley Pictures Court versus Regents went before the U.S. Supreme Court, though, the court's judgment read in part, quote, what New York has done, therefore, is to prevent the exhibition of a motion picture because that picture advocates an idea that adultery under certain circumstances may be proper behavior. Yet the First Amendment's basic guarantee is of freedom to advocate ideas. The state, quite simply, has thus struck at the very heart of constitutionally protected liberty. Yeah, that film was made in 1955, but it was a couple years later that they tried to distribute it in the U.S., uh, and all of this started to bubble over. On May 11th, 1959, the Johnson City Press of Tennessee reported, quote, Last week, the Grove City Press released an edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover exactly as D.H. Lawrence wrote it, not omitting one four-letter word or tender descriptive passage. This article then mentions that while 30,000 copies of the book had made their way out into the world, I question that number, uh, <laughs> the New York Post Office had seized 164 copies of it. Publisher Barney Rossett, who founded Grove Press, fought to have bans on a number of books overturned, and among those titles was Lady Chatterley's Lover, and he filed suit against Robert K. Christenberry individually and as postmaster of the city of New York. That was in United States District Court SD, New York, in a filing which read, quote, Plaintiffs seek to restrain the postmaster from enforcing a decision of the post office department that the unexpurgated Lady Chatterley's lover and circulars announcing its availability are non-mailable under the statute barring obscene matter from the mails. Rossett won the case, and this established the idea of redeeming value for controversial works that excluded them from obscenity laws. 
So after the update to the British Obscenity Act and the success of U.S. publishers in court, Penguin Books took a bold step and published an unexpurgated edition of Lady C in London. Nine days after its publication, legal proceedings were initiated and the case of R.V. Penguin Books Limited was filed. That R stands for Regina, which means queen. It's like saying, the crown is filing this suit against you. (laughs) Okay, we're gearing up for the trial, but first we'll take a quick sponsor break. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the 
the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. During the time before Great Britain's Obscenity Act had its 1959 update, Lady Chatterley's Lover had circulated for decades. There were versions of the book printed in various countries almost from the moment the book was first released. And we use the word printed there rather than published pretty deliberately because a lot of them were basically black market reproductions made by copying that initial run. I read one cute account, it read cutely to me, about like, what will high school teenagers do now to be rebellious if this book is made (laughs) legal? (laughs) And as it once again became a hot topic, the revisit to Lawrence's tale led to a new generation considering its value and whether it was worth getting spun up over. In 1959, Time magazine ran a fresh review of the book, which stated, quote, but is it pornography? The answer of literary people is no. Lawrence, a fretful neurotic always at war with himself, was a serious writer. But there is another question. Is Lady Chatterley dull and tiresome? This time, the answer must be yes. People were starting to see this book's banning as kind of pointless by this time. The lines regarding what people thought of as obscene and what was merely provocative, those lines had shifted a lot since the late 1920s. The Asheville Citizen Times of Asheville, North Carolina, ran an article about the Grove Press edition, which included the comment, Quote, it may seem ungallant to point this out, but after 30 years, Lady Chatterley, that much-talked-about English gentlewoman who had an affair with her husband's gamekeeper, may strike the present-day observer as rather tame. Penguin's publication of the book was not an attempt to just slide it through print and hope nobody noticed. The book had been a subject of renewed debate in both countries for several years, and Penguin made an announcement that they would be publishing it months before they did so. They even delivered 15 copies directly to police officials. They knew that this inexpensive paperback edition, it cost just three shillings and six pence. They thought that would likely become a test case for these updated 1959 obscenity laws. And they were right. In August 1960, Penguin was called to the bench. And on October 20th of that year, the trial of Lady Chatterley was underway at the Old Bailey, known more formally as the Central Criminal Court of London. All of the jurors had been given copies of the new Penguin edition of the book and had been instructed by the judge to read them. They had like a weekend and a couple of days to get it read. During the London trial, prosecutor Mervyn Griffith-Jones addressed the jury, opening with, quote, let me emphasize it on behalf of the prosecution. Do not approach this manner in any priggish, high-minded, super-correct, mid-Victorian manner. Look at it as we, all of us, I hope, look at things today. And then, to go back and requote the words of Mr. Justice Devlin, uh, you will have to say, is this book to be tolerated or not? 
Would you approve of your young sons, young daughters, because girls can read as well as boys, reading this book? Is it a book that you would have lying around your in your own house? Is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read? That sort of sexist and classist series of questions there at the end of the quote really ended up hurting the prosecution because to the jury, it made it seem very out of touch with modern sensibilities. Griffith Jones had also counted all of the obscene acts and words in the book, and he gave the assembled jurors those statistics. The F word was in the book more than 30 times. The C word, 14 times. There were 13, quote, episodes of sexual intercourse, and 12 of them were very detailed. But here's the thing. He even, like, offered up the word womb as something offensive in his argument. And again, that probably didn't help his case. The defense was led by Gerald Gardner, and opening remarks reminded the jury of the reputation of Penguin Books and its well-established mission to put great works of literature in the hands of working people. Gardner asked the jury to consider whether such a reputable publisher would want something as reprehensible as what Mr. Griffith Jones had described in the hands of so many. He also made the case that even though he had been controversial in his lifetime, since his death, D.H. Lawrence had come to be recognized as one of the great English writers and among the five or six greatest. Yes, the defense conceded there were things in the book that were shocking, but the jury had to decide whether it was like to corrupt people or lead to depravity. The defense called 35 witnesses, among them people like Rebecca West and E.M. Forster. There were journalists, there were editors and literature professors. There were critics. There were even ministers and experts in child development and education. And they all testified that Lawrence was actually making a fairly moral case with Lady Chatterley. When one witness stated that Lawrence used sex as a, quote, holy basis for a good life, the prosecution started reading the most salacious passages he could find in the book to show just how unholy they were. According to Molly Panter Downs, who was a journalist who attended the trial and wrote about it for The New Yorker, quote, practically every description of lovemaking in the book must have been read out by Mr. Griffith Jones, with awful emphasis and the air of imparting some reprehensible right that would be news to all his listeners. And it was interesting how well the writing stood up to that treatment. Defense witness Helen Gardner, who was a reader of Renaissance English literature at the University of Oxford, stated that Lawrence's use of four-letter words was not shameful, as they were describing an act that itself was not shameful. When Griffith Jones asked her if she would object to teaching the book to a mixed class, she replied, oh no, seeming perplexed that he would even ask such a question was days and days of literary discussion in court, and though the defense had, they claimed, another 36 witnesses in reserve, when they stopped at the 35 initially listed, the entire courtroom seemed relieved. Panter Downs wrote of the lengthy stream of defense witnesses, quote, by the end of the case, every juror should have been qualified to write an honors thesis on it. Finally, Justice Byrne, who presided over the case, reminded the jurors that they really had two things to deliberate. First, whether the book was obscene. And second, whether its literary merit outweighed any obscenity that they had determined it to possess. 
The defense seemed pretty worried, despite all of their witnesses testifying to the book's value. The liberation took three hours. When the jury returned, they announced the verdict of not guilty. Penguin Books had not run afoul of the obscenity law in publishing Lady Chatterley's Lover. Just days later, the publisher released all the copies it had, and the 200,000-copy print run sold out. Bookshops all over Britain reported that they had run out of stock and had started taking back orders. Penguin added a publisher's dedication to their next edition that read, quote, For having published this book, Penguin Books was prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act 1959 at the Old Bailey in London from 20 October to 2 November 1960. This edition is therefore dedicated to the 12 jurors, three women and nine men, who returned a verdict of not guilty and thus made D.H. Lawrence's last novel available for the first time to the public in the United Kingdom. Two million copies of the 32-year-old book were sold in less than a year. Today, the Chatterley obscenity case is considered a landmark when it comes to obscenity law in Britain. So much so that the copy that was used by Judge Sir Lawrence Byrne was sold at auction by Sotheby's in 2019 for £56,250. But British Arts Minister Michael Ellis issued a ban on its export to the anonymous buyer because there was concern about letting an important artifact of British legal and literary history leave the country. So a funding effort was launched to match the auction price and keep that annotated copy in Britain. Penguin Books donated £10,000 to this effort. But ultimately, the University of Bristol purchased the book to keep in the Penguin Archive, ensuring that it would indeed stay in Britain. And that is the Lady Chatterley's Lover Trial, which I sort of love, as I said. It's just such an interesting thing. I remember um, having discussions about books that were considered obscene um, in high school. This is when I realized I couldn't debate because I got, I completely lost my cool during a, bit, a debate where mm-hmm. someone was being very um, prudish by my estimation. And I was like, I don't think you've read the material. And I really was not, <laughs> not on the debate team. Didn't make it. Um, what I do have is a, a listener mail, though. And we'll talk more about Lady C on, <laughs> on Friday. But I have a listener mail, uh, which is a correction. Um, because I left a single word out and ruined the meaning of a thing. So this is from our listener, Barbara. Barbara writes, I am binge listening to the 2022 season and just finished the Mabel Pinghua Lee episode from May 25th, 2022. I noticed in the story it was stated that in 1917, New York was the first state to give women the vote. That is not correct. It was Wyoming. Wyoming gave women the right to vote when it was a territory in 1869. In 1889, it was made part of the original constitution, while they were becoming a state, which occurred in 1890. So it was Wyoming in 1890 as the first state to have in their constitution women's suffrage. Uh, Maybe there was some way that that sentence was worded in the podcast, like first state that had denied women the vote to give women the vote, as Wyoming had it from the very beginning of a state. Barbara, of course, you're right. Um, I I actually looked at one of my earlier notes, and Tracy knows. I mean, I think we've both done this, but I'm probably the worst of of us. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll make a note, and then you'll copy a thing. You'll copy paste it into a document, and words will vanish, and it will... Something gets munged. Yeah, I had literally written it as in my side notes because I keep a second document that's like me writing 
key points to hit, and it was like first Eastern state <laughs> and Eastern yeah. Bella. <laughs> so somehow I I thought we had already uh, like done a correction about this shortly after the episode came out, but it may just be that somebody mentioned it and I looked it up. I think so, because I don't remember talking about it, but I could be wrong yeah. because I also forget things. Yeah, I also also forget things, but the New York law did become, like, a big rallying cry for women's voting rights in the East. And so I think that, like, that's why it gets noted in that context of, like, the first state in the Eastern U.S. Although, really, neither of these things are correct because the first state that let women vote was actually New Jersey. Yeah. The New Jersey Assembly passed a law in 1797 that gave women the right to vote across the state but then they took it back in 1807. (laughs) So for 10 years, women could vote in New Jersey, uh, and then that was not the case anymore. By total coincidence, we are recording this listener mail on election day here in the U.S. sure are. I'm going to be going to the polls after we finish recording. I early voted because I have meetings this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So at the last minute on Friday, I was like, oh, Brian, we got to early vote, so I don't forget. Yeah, I... uh, I did not because uh, the, the 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 election day polling place is a lot closer to me than the early voting location. Oh, ours are pretty comparable. Yeah. Yeah, not too bad. But in any case, Barbara, thank you for your email and pointing that out. And then I had not known that thing about New Jersey until I went to verify stuff and I discovered it. So now we all learn today. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not subscribed yet and you would like to, you can do so on the iHeartRadio app or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. 